Um, good evening, everyone. I am Nadeli Zondo, and I will be reading from Ephesians chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, his, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For, anyone, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Naledi, for that, for that reading. Evening, everybody. Uh, before we come to this passage, I think, as always, it'll be good to ask for the Lord's help. So won't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, um, once again, we need to hear from you. Um, in every area of life, Lord, we, we need to be reminded of the saving grace and lordship of our king. And we need your help in understanding how that works its way out into our lives. And so we are so grateful to you for your word. Lord, we don't always find it easy. Um, and so will you, will you be with us this evening? As always, uh, we need ears to hear. We need soft hearts to receive what you have to say to us. We need the scales lifted from our eyes. All of that is an act of God. Uh, we, we don't want the knowledge that puffs up. We need the love that builds up. And so will you be with us this evening, Lord, and help us. Help us receive this word as a word from a father who loves us, who loves his children and wants to see them flourish. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus for his glory. Amen. So uh, let's, let's begin at the beginning, and let's not pretend that this passage isn't controversial. Let's face up to that right up front. Uh, one way or another, this passage evokes strong feelings in us. Fun fact, this passage was the passage that my pastor chose to preach on at our wedding. When I gave it to the reader to read, he refused to read it. He said, I can't read this. It's anachronistic. It's, it's, it's old-fashioned. We've moved past this. This belongs to a bygone era. But he was under the pressure of a wedding that needed to happen. And so in the end, he read it begrudgingly, and the pastor preached it faithfully. And then one of our guests at the reception verbally assaulted our pastor. So I know from personal experience that this passage evokes strong feelings in us. 
Even so, whatever we think of it, it remains God's word to us in every generation. And so we have to do business with this part of Scripture, just as we have to do business with every part of Scripture. What's so interesting is that we tend to be offended by the instruction to wives. In Paul's day, it was the complete opposite. The complete opposite. Paul's audience would have been offended by the instruction to husbands. That's just a reminder to us that all of our convictions, and especially, most often, our strongest convictions are culturally conditioned. They are shifting sands. We are shocked and horrified by some of the convictions our grandparents held. Not so? Guess what? Your grandchildren are going to be shocked and horrified by some of the convictions that you hold. It's the same in every generation. Because the Bible is God's unchanging word to us in every generation, because it stands above every generation and speaks into every generation, because it remains the same while our convictions change, at some point, it will offend our convictions. It will offend the convictions of every single generation. And it offends the convictions of every single generation because the convictions of every single generation are warped by sin at some point. All of that to say, we should expect to be offended by the Bible. And where we are offended, well, that's where we must pay the most attention. That's where we must really lean in and listen closely to what God is saying because that's exactly where our convictions need to change. So let's do that this evening. Shall we try? Let's lean in and listen to what God is saying. First thing we want to hear when we come to this passage is everything that came before it in Ephesians. Because what Paul is saying to us here comes in a context. Do you remember what the context is? We've been working through this for the greater part of the year. The context is you belong. Do you recall? The message of Ephesians is overwhelmingly you belong. You belong to the Father through the saving work of the Son in the power and presence of the Spirit. You belong. You belong to the family of God. And this is how we live in the family of God. So... Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been called into the family. You belong. Now live like it. Live like a member of the family. 4.17, he says, don't live like the world around you because you belong. 5, verse 1, he says, walk in love. Why? Because you are beloved children. 5, verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light because that's who you are. 5 verse 15, he says, walk in wisdom because you belong to the wise one. 5.18, be filled with his spirit. Allow the transforming power and presence of God to shape how you live because you belong to him. That's where our passage comes from. And if we don't, all, if we don't hear all of that, we are going to misunderstand what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul in this passage. So what is he saying? Let's get into it. He has four things to give us through the Apostle Paul. 
A word for everyone. A word on the purpose of marriage. A word for wives and a word for husbands. Those four things. A word for everyone. Word on the purpose of marriage. Word for wives. Word for husbands. Firstly, a word for everyone. This is Paul's word to everyone. It's in 5 verse 21. Be filled with the Spirit and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's clear in the Greek, not so clear in the English, but it's there in the original, that the command to submit flows out of being filled by the Spirit. In other words, by the transforming power and presence of God in your life, submit to one another. One fruit of the Spirit in our lives should be submission. Paul is talking about our relationship to authority, either as those who exercise authority or as those who live under authority. Before we can understand Paul, we need to spend a little bit of time understanding ourselves. What is our relationship to authority? Maybe it's helpful to start with the big picture. We see something of the human relationship to authority in our superpowers, in China and the U.S., basically the two most prominent social models when it comes to authority. What are those models? Two extremes, total authority or next to no authority, total control or no control, tyranny or anarchy, China or the U.S. Those are caricatures, but I hope they illustrate the point. And what's true of our social models is, tends to be true of us as individuals because the way we organize ourselves socially is just the individual impulse writ large, right? So that means that you, as an individual sitting here this evening, will tend to prefer one or the other. Temperamentally, you will either prefer authority or you will prefer anarchy. We tend to either idolize authority or we tend to idolize freedom from authority. You and I will be inclined to one or the other. And then we will tend to make God in that image. And so we will either make God into a strict schoolmaster or we'll make him into a kind of hippie grandfather. One or the other. Of course, living in South Africa with our history, you add a layer of complexity because we have a particularly complicated relationship with authority. The apartheid government ruled with an iron fist. It was a total and wicked abuse of authority in itself, but it also left us with tragic legacies that deepen our confusion when it comes to authority. So take the legacy of fatherless households. How does that shape our view of authority as a people? Or other social problems, like high unemployment, which leaves a lot of people feeling powerless, feeling impotent. And so they try and reclaim a sense of power in their interpersonal relationships, often in abusive ways. Authority comes with power. And we either tend to covet authority because we lust after power, or we tend to be deeply distrustful of authority because of the abuse of power. Often we end up with some poisonous cocktail of the two playing out in ourselves, in the same person. So on the one hand, coveting authority for ourselves. On the other hand, hating authority when we see it in others. It's a mess. It's a mess. 
our relationship to authority in this fallen world is a mess. The point is this. We bring all of that baggage to the text. That's the point. We bring all of that baggage to the word submit. We just need to note that, admit it, own it. We are deeply confused and conflicted when it comes to authority. Into all of that chaos comes the word of the Lord with an invitation to submit to one another in the power of the Spirit and out of reverence for Christ. The idea of submission is that I subvert my rights and interests to your rights and interests. That's the idea of submission. It's a call to the order and freedom that love brings. Again, temperamentally and because of our experience, because of the society we live in, because of the broken world we live in, we either want order, we either tend to want order or we, want to t- we tend to want freedom. But God's model of authority gives us both because it's based on the principle of love, not coercion. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because this is who God is and this is how he has dealt with us from the very beginning. In the beginning, what did God do? He took what was formless and empty. What did he do? He exercised authority to fill it and to form it. He brought order into the chaos, but not the kind of order that stifles freedom. That's not how the story went. It's the kind of order that sets creation free to grow and to prosper. That's what he does. This is his model of authority. It provides the structure, the boundaries that are necessary for the full life, for the abundant life. That's what he did in creation. That's what he does in human society by giving us institutions of authority like government. And so it should be no surprise to us that he also does this very same thing in the church. You know, Paul's whole letter to the Corinthian church was written to bring order. The kind of order that will help the church flourish and grow. Not the kind of order that constrains growth, kills growth. Why does he write the letter? Because in his words, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. He's a God of peace. And peace in the Bible is about well-being. It's about flourishing. It's about prosperity. What Paul did for the Corinthian church in that letter, he's doing for the Ephesian church in this letter. He's calling for submission to God's model of authority. A model that brings freedom through order because it's based on the principle of love. He calls for that kind of authority and submission both in the home and in the workplace. That's the rest of chapter 5. And he calls for it the kind of order that brings freedom and flourishing, he calls for it out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. That makes all the difference. It's as we submit to Christ in the fullness of his spirit that we will submit to one another. That's crucial. That's absolutely critical because all of your leaders... Even the very best of the people you submit to will fail you at some point. They will. 
They will fail you. And at that point, why would you submit to them? Out of reverence for Christ. We submit because we serve a king who himself submitted. He submitted to his father. And he submitted to us. He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He washed his disciples' feet. That's what he did with his authority. We submit to the authorities he's placed over us, as imperfect as they are, and they are. We submit to them out of reverence for him. Out of reverence for the servant king. And that's a word for us all. Every single one of us here this evening. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One more thing to consider before we actually get into wives and husbands. Before we can understand our roles in marriage, we need a word on the purpose of marriage itself. What is the purpose of marriage, if I ask you that question? What comes to mind? Well, it serves many purposes. I'm sure a whole range of things come to mind. Companionship, sexual intimacy, children, social cohesion, the list goes on and on. Lots of good purposes for marriage. Important, all of them. None of them is ultimate. None of them is the most important. Paul gives us the ultimate purpose of marriage in verse 31. So have a look there, 5 verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The deepest meaning of marriage, the ultimate meaning of marriage, is as a picture of God's relationship with his people. You find it all over the Old Testament. This isn't something that Paul's cooked up here. He is drawing on his experience and his instincts and his intuition and his scripture reading as a rabbi when he says these things. What he's saying is all over the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel pictured as a marriage. And that makes sense because man and wife, God and his people, are both relationships of covenant love. So in the end, you do not marry For the reasons our culture gives us. Either self-actualization or social convention. Either this person fulfilling me and meeting my needs. Or this person helping me to meet my family's expectations. My community's expectations. You don't even get married just for good biblical reasons like wanting children. Your marriage is deeper than that. Your marriage is a picture of God's covenant love for his people. Your marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Can you imagine? It is extraordinary. It is a profound and glorious mystery. So now and only now, we are ready to receive a word for wives and a word for husbands. Without all of that context, we are going to misunderstand. And of course we're going to be offended. And now we are ready because now the question is no longer how do I get the most out of my marriage. The question is no longer how can I get my partner to do what I want them to do, what they should be doing for me. Those are no longer the questions. The question is 
how do I relate to my spouse in a way that will serve the deepest purpose of marriage? How do I relate to my spouse in a way that points people to the beauty of Christ and his church, his bride? If you come, if I come with those questions, then we are ready to receive a word for wives and a word for husbands. I hope you see how important the preamble is. It's taken us a long time to get here. But without all of that, we're going to misunderstand. Paul's word for wives. 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, we may find that offensive, but as we've already said, nobody in Paul's day would have found it offensive. In fact, the strange thing is not that he tells wives to submit It's that he addresses wives at all. In that culture, female submission wouldn't have been offensive. It would have been expected. It would have gone without saying. But Paul says it. And that's the extraordinary thing. He says it. And in saying it, he's not assuming it. In saying it, he is acknowledging the dignity and the agency of women. In a way that would have been so hyper-radical in his culture, we can't even imagine He is acknowledging that women have a choice in this matter. This would have been so highly offensive in his day. But he he goes further still. He doesn't just give the command. He motivates it. He makes a case for why submission is a good thing. Why it's a thing that wives should want and desire. You know, in, in his day, saying these things, Paul was a flaming liberal. He's treating men and women with equal dignity and agency. Unheard of. It would have been a revolution in his culture. What are the reasons for submission that he gives? Again, 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. First reason, submit as to the Lord. Or submit out of reverence for Christ. You are doing this because you trust your king. He's the one who designed marriage. And he's saying, this is how it works. It only works on humble submission and loving headship. There's no other way. Without that, it's either going to be ugly bullying or it's going to be an endless power struggle. This is the only way it works. And we've all seen marriages that don't run in that way. We've all seen the ugly bullying and the endless power struggle. Marriages where one party bullies the other relentlessly, and we do have to say it's not always the husbands. Very often it is, but not always. Or marriages where there is endless fighting over who's in charge. It just doesn't work. The king of humanity says, I made you. I know how this relationship works. Marriage is designed to run on loving headship and humble submission. There's no other way. And notice, ladies, if you are submitting to your husband out of reverence for Christ, that immediately rules out submission to the sinful desires of your husband. Immediately. Because Christ is the head of both you and your husband. So you are not called to enable sinful or abusive behaviors. Ruled out of court 
from the outset, you are not called to enable sinful or abusive behaviors. At that point, your answer to your husband is Peter's answer to his authority, the Sanhedrin. He says to the Sanhedrin, you say to your husband, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. You are not called to submit to anything that is overtly sinful. But insofar as your husband is trying, in his own limited, flawed, weak, and inconsistent way, because he's a human being, insofar as he is trying to be godly, well then the call is to submit to him, verse 24, in everything. Not just in the areas where you agree with him, because that's not submission, that's agreement. That's affirmation of my will. Even in the areas where you don't agree with him. And the first reason you would do that is because you trust and obey not always your husband's judgment, as if it's infallible. No, you trust and obey your king. Second reason to submit, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The second reason is that when you submit to your husband, you are lighting up your marriage so that it can shine as an image of Christ and his church to a dark world. Imagine it. Such a beautiful picture. Your submission to your husband brings glory to God. You may think it's unseen, but the world is looking in. And when you submit to your husband, you bring glory to God. The final reason to submit is this from verse 23. Your husband's leadership is like Christ's leadership of the church In this way, it is designed to make you flourish. It is designed for you to prosper and to become the most beautiful, God-glorifying version of yourself. That's what it's there for. That's what his headship is there for. How so? How do we make sense of that statement? Well, to answer, we need to hear God's word for husbands. In verse 25, husbands... Love your wives. The first word is critical. Husbands. Gents in the room. You've been on autopilot up to this point. Switch on here. Husbands. It's clear in the Greek. Paul is stressing exactly who he's talking to. And at this point he's talking to husbands. Wives submit to your husbands is not addressed to men. It's addressed to women. But all too often, we men seem to have a special interest in policing what God has said to our wives. No, what he says to our wives, he says to our wives. And what he says to us, he says to us. And what he says to us is not, husbands, make sure your wives submit. That's not what he says. That is not our business. We have enough to do without worrying about whether our wives are submitting or not. So when I do premarital counseling and a young man seems to have a particular interest in verse 22, 
wife submit to your husband, that's an immediate red flag for me. Because it means he has missed the point completely. God addresses husbands in verse 25, not in verse 22. We have to be clear on this. Verse 25, gents, that's our focus. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives. Simple enough, right? Chocolates on Valentine's Day, flowers on her birthday, love your wives, tick. Not so fast. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ouch. Now we're in a whole other category of love. Now it's clear who has to do the heavy lifting in this relationship, and it's not our wives. It's not. How does Christ love the church? Well, firstly, with a love that endures all things. In verses 25 to 27, you see Christ's love for his bride moving from eternity past through the cross to the glory of eternity future. His steadfast love for the church endures forever. Husbands, love your wives like that. Your love for your wife must endure all things, and it must endure to the end. Secondly, in love, we're asking the question, how does Christ love the church? In love, he gave himself up for her. He bled and died for his bride. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. When he mentions cleansing, Paul is talking about how the cross cleanses us of the guilt and the shame that comes with our sin. And that cleansing is symbolized in baptism, the washing of the water. It comes to us in the word, the gospel. In the gospel, Christ says to his bride, the church, I love you. And in baptism, he gives her a picture of his love, like the wedding ring. But that, of course, is not the end of Christ's love for his bride. Now that he's won his bride, he continues to beautify her ahead of the wedding day. Verse 27, he sanctifies her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ sacrifices himself for the flourishing and beauty of his wife. He wants her to be radiant. He wants her to be all that she can be. That's his model of authority. That's his love for the church. Gents, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. In the same way. Now that can crash us. Once again, Paul gives us the motivation. The first is from creation. When you are married, you are one flesh. You are a unity. And so just as the wife's submission to her husband is a blessing to the marriage as a whole, it's a blessing both to him and to her, so the husband's love for his wife is a blessing to the marriage as a whole, both to her and to him. Second motivation. Why would we love our wives in this way? Second motivation is the one that we already know by now. When a wife, when a husband 
loves his wife in this self-sacrificial way, he is lighting up his marriage so that it can shine as an image of Christ and his bride into a lost and dark world that needs that light. Gentlemen, do you see how high a calling this is? It is not to be taken lightly. You want to be the man of your house. This is what it means. You are a servant. You are the first among servants. Yes, you lead, but you lead through service. And ladies, I hope, I hope you can see now what you are called to submit to. Godly authority and godly submission are two expressions of the same love. In authority, Christ died for the church. In submission, Christ preferred his Father's will to his own. It is as divine to submit as it is to lead. Can I say that again? Please try and take this in. It is as divine to submit as it is to lead. How do we know? Christ did both. They are both expressions of love. Headship means sacrificing your will and your interests for the sake of your wife. Submission means sacrificing your will and your interests for the sake of your husband. They are the same thing. Only one initiates and the other responds. One calls and the other answers. One leads and the other follows. When we watch ballroom dancers... I'm pretending we all do, <laughs> myself included. But when you watch ballroom dancers, you see something beautiful. I will concede that much. It's not my favorite sport, but I'll concede that much. It is something beautiful. It's something graceful and elegant. You don't come away thinking, what a misogynistic expression of patriarchal male dominance. You don't. No, you come away thinking they move together so fluidly. You hardly even notice that one is actually leading and the other is following. It's one dance and it's beautiful. That's what we are called to. And when we do it well, it is a picture of Christ and his church. As we draw to a close, notice that wives submit and husbands love are a command. They're not just a description. They're not assuming what is. They are a call to what should be. Paul is not just describing marriages in the church as they are. He is calling them to be what they should be because we all belong. Remember, that's the context. We all belong. And this is the beauty of having the gospel at the very center of marriage. Because when you fail to submit or to love, as you will, as you inevitably will, as we all do for those of us who are married, when you fail to submit, not if, when, and by when we mean at what time of this current day am I that I'm currently living. When you fail, you go back to the center of marriage. And what do you find there? What do you find at the center of marriage? You find a king who died to cleanse you from the guilt and the shame of your failure. You find a, a spirit who fills you with his 
forgiving and cleansing power and presence. You find a father who loves you not because of your performance as a wife or a husband, but because he's your father. You are his. You belong and you will always belong. In other words, you go back, when you, in your failure, you go back to the center of marriage, to the heartbeat of marriage, and you find everything you need to start again and to keep going. Because right at the center of every marriage is the cross of Christ. And so we take our failure there. You see, failure is built into the heart of marriage. Let me end by getting personal, trying to put flesh on these bones. What does it look like in my own marriage? Well, my wife, for those of you who know her, for those of you who don't, I'm going to share anyway. My wife is an extraordinary woman. My daughter wants to be her. My sons want to marry her. She is my better half in every area that matters. Those of you who know her will not need to be persuaded. She's that annoying combination of profoundly gifted and deeply humble at the same time. You know those people? I just get irritated thinking about it, actually. (laughs) Just to give you a sense, when I was at Bible college, she was holding down two jobs, running her own business and subcontracting to another. She was raising three children under five years old. We moved house. In those five years, we moved house three times. And she did all of that while she was battling breast cancer. I don't need to convince you. Just a remarkable woman. A leader in her own right. That's the point. A leader in her own right. I can say without a doubt and without any hesitation, a better leader than me. More naturally gifted. And yet, and yet, she submits to my leadership. Why on earth would she do that? Well, she would do it because it's not about gifting. It's about calling. She does it because she trusts her king. She does it because his spirit lives in her. She does it because she belongs to her father. And when she submits, it gives him glory. You can tell it's got absolutely nothing to do with me. Now, I've painted a certain picture. She's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Our marriage, I can promise you, is not perfect. We fail each other, we fail our children, we fail the people around us all the time. All the time. But even as a failing husband, I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful because of Jesus. Because we have a third person in our marriage. Normally a terrible idea. In his case, always a good idea. And he never fails. He never fails. In fact, he is most powerful in our failures. He's the reason our failure can be an opportunity to grow in godliness. See, God's model, this is what I was trying to say earlier, God's model of marriage is not a fairy tale. This is not Harry and Meghan on Netflix. This, this is real. And because it's real, it has to have our failure built into it. And it does. Right at the very center It's only because we belong that we can answer the gospel call and that gospel call can move us through our failure, through the cross, to better things in faith and obedience. Shall we pray that it does? Let's do that.
Father, we are all sorts of people here this evening. Married, divorced, single, hoping to be married. I pray that the beauty of your gospel will speak to the hearts of each one. I pray that those whose marriages have failed will realize the cleansing forgiveness that they have in Christ. I pray for those whose marriages are failing, that they will draw strength from your spirit to keep going in Christ. I pray that they will be refreshed by this glorious vision of what marriage can be. I pray for those who are looking to be married, that you will show them the gravity and the beauty of this calling, that marriage is in the first place an opportunity to shine God's love for his people into a dark and desperate world. I pray for those who will never be married, that you will remind them that their belonging does not depend on their marriage status. Father, we belong to you. We are your children. Help us to live for you in the fullness of your spirit and out of reverence for Christ. Amen.